This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month members of our employment team get together to have a chat about a recent case. I'm Ben Mitchell, and today I'm joined by podcast veteran Hannah Slarks. Hannah is going to tell me about the Higgs and Farmers School case. This is my maiden outing on the podcast, but Hannah, you're the founding father, isn't that right? I like founding father. But yeah, the podcast is my baby. I'm the producer. I was the first interviewer. But this is my first time in the hot seat. And I've got to say, it is not as comfortable as it looks. Right. So we're both we're both new to it in, in one way or the other. I know we've had a string of podcasts about gender critical beliefs. And there's a traditional apology given at the start of all of those. Yeah, I mean, we just keep trying to avoid doing cases on this controversial issue and we just can't help ourselves. So this is our third gender critical case this year. It's actually our second podcast about this very case. The case that keeps on giving. Hannah, what's this case all about? It's an appellate decision that tries, again, to explain how all the different legal tests fit together for cases about discrimination against a person who's been manifesting their religious or philosophical beliefs. So we really needed a judgment that does that. Why is that? Why did we really need this Higgs case? It's a fast-developing area of law that blends together human rights law and equality law in quite a confusing way. So we've ended up with a series of judgments that give us tests, but no one judgment that explains clearly how all the tests fit together. So is that the big question? How all the different tests under what discrimination or human rights law fit together? Well, I actually wish there was just one big question. Actually, no, wait. Actually, while we're wishing, I wish that more of these judgments had even tried to answer the multiple big questions that there are. Okay, then. So how many big questions are there? I mean, loads, but let's say two for now. So the first is, is this direct or indirect discrimination? And the second is, if it's direct, what's the test for that? Okay, well, let's start with number one. Okay, so number one is, when you discriminate against someone because of how they behave, but how they behave arises from their beliefs, is that direct or indirect discrimination? So going back to the basics here, generally the Equality Act works like this. Direct discrimination can't be justified, indirect discrimination can. So this is direct discrimination. Bob is dismissed because of the fact that he is paralysed from the waist down and that's unlawful. He's been treated differently because of his protected characteristic, namely his disability. And so the employer isn't permitted to offer any explanation or excuse or justification in their defence. But this is indirect discrimination. Bob is a dancer. His employer has a general policy that it's all its dancers have to be able to tap dance. And Bob is dismissed because following his accident, he can't tap dance anymore. So he's been subject to the same policy as everyone else, but it's had a worse impact on him because of his protected characteristic. That's indirect discrimination. So his employer is allowed to argue then that the dismissal is objectively justified. It's allowed to say, well, that's fair enough because tap dancing is essential to Bob's work. But that simple distinction gets very murky in this area of discrimination, which is about people's beliefs. So let's say Bob's dismissed because he refuses to work on Sundays, or Bob is dismissed because he tells his colleagues that abortion is murder. Is he being dismissed because of the fact that he believes these things? Or 
is his employer's general approach just more likely to negatively impact on people with his beliefs? How should the law treat these cases? And how does human rights law come in on top of that? So our Equality Act has its roots in EU law. But occasionally, discrimination strays into an area which engages rights covered by the European Convention on Human Rights, which is a child of the Council of Europe, not the EU. And then the courts have to try and reconcile all the various principles from these two roots. So in manifestation of belief cases, the convention's engaged because the cases involve people's rights to freedom of belief and freedom of expression. So Bob's right not to work on Sundays or his right to tell his colleagues what he believes. But that creates a real spanner in the works because under the convention, if someone is discriminated against because of the way that they manifest their belief rather than the belief itself, then their employer is allowed to offer an objective justification. Talk us through why that doesn't work with the Equality Act then. Well, that takes us back to our first question. We know that in domestic law, you're not allowed to offer objective justification for direct discrimination. But if the convention's requiring us to allow objective justification, does that mean that applying the convention, discrimination due to manifestation of belief has to be indirect discrimination where it fits in domestic law? Or is it a special kind of direct discrimination that you are allowed to justify? So in other words, do we have to read an objective justification defence into these direct discrimination cases where the act otherwise wouldn't allow it. And that leads us to the second question. And you'll have to remind me, what one is that again? So the second question is, if it's direct discrimination, what's the test for direct discrimination in this context? Or put differently, what on earth kind of direct discrimination is this? A sort of defensible direct discrimination. How can you smush Article 9 together with direct discrimination in a way that makes any sense at all? Smush being the technical legal term for it, is it? I genuinely can think of no better description for the reasoning in some of these judgments than smush. How is it that we've gone so long without answering this? I remember studying equality law at the start of the last decade, and this was one of the burning issues. So what's what's happened in the meantime? Well, we've had a lot of law on it, and an increasing amount because all the gender-critical belief cases have come to the tribunals lately, although by no means all of the cases grappling with this have been on that topic. And some of these cases have treated manifestation discrimination as indirect discrimination. So examples of that include a case called Mba, I think that's how it's pronounced, no idea, and Mayor and Burgesses of the London Borough of Merton. So that was about a Christian care worker who objected to working on a Sunday, like Bob, and that used the prism of indirect discrimination. But the more recent cases mostly operate on the basis that this is this new breed of defensible direct discrimination. The new breed being the schmushy Article 9 direct discrimination. Exactly. So examples of that include a 2016 case called Wastney, which is about the dismissal of a manager for proselytising to his managee. So before the AT, that was pursued as a direct discrimination case. And Mrs Justice Eady found no direct discrimination, but she commented that indirect discrimination might be the more obvious route of challenge in most cases involving manifestation of belief. And then since then, we had 
the key Court of Appeal authority in this area, which was Page in 2021. And that was a case about a non-executive director of an NHS trust who boldly went on Good Morning Britain to tell Piers Morgan exactly what he thought about homosexuality. And again, by the time we get to this appellate stage, this was only really being pursued as a direct discrimination case. And then since then, we've had Forstatter, Makareth and Bailey, all cases about gender critical beliefs. And in all those cases, the primary focus has been on direct discrimination. So we've had a lot of cases. How did they square the Article 9 test with the unjustifiability of direct discrimination normally? Somewhat differently each time. So in Waysney, the AT said, well, the question is really just the domestic legislation question. What was the reason for the discriminatory act? Was it the fact that the person was manifesting their beliefs? If so, that's direct discrimination and the claim succeeds. Or was it the fact that the person was inappropriately expressing their beliefs? So because of the way that they're expressing them or the context in which they're expressing them. And the EAT said, by asking whether the expression of belief was inappropriate, you've covered the territory of Article 9. You don't have to go through all the ordinary stages of an Article 9 objective justification test, which are quite complicated, because you can do that just by asking, was the employer's reason that the expression of the belief was inappropriate? That's a bit problematic though, isn't it? There's a lot more to human rights justification analysis than that. Completely agree with you. I think logically the Equality Act question, why did the employer do that, is very different from the human rights question, was it justifiable for the employer to do that? especially given the Article 9 test for justification, is this quite complicated multi-stage test. I don't see that they collapse into each other very comfortably. Right. And then the Court of Appeal moved things on a little bit in Page, did they? Yes. So Page put us in a position where we have two rival tests sitting alongside each other. So it also said you could do the Article 9 justification just by looking at the employer's reason. Was that reason a justified objection to the way the employee manifested their belief or not? And indeed, Court of Appeal says, well, that has to be the primary test because the Employment Tribunal has jurisdiction to determine Equality Act claims. It doesn't have jurisdiction to determine Human Rights Act claims. It can and should be influenced by human rights law, but the primary framework has to be the Equality Act. But... Then the Court of Appeal did the human rights analysis anyway. It did a full Article 9 analysis, albeit a slightly abridged one. And then it finished that and it did a separate direct discrimination, justified objection type analysis. And then confusingly, it said, oh, you know those two separate analyses we just did? You know, just joking, they're essentially the same. They'll always give you the same answer. Right, so after Page, we're in a place where we have two tests. We have a classic Article 9 analysis. We have a smudged direct discrimination where there might be a justified objection to what an employee did. So the employer's interference with it might be lawful. And then we have a rounding up conclusion that ultimately they come out at the same point. Do you think that's right? I don't see that they are the same. And I also think it's a real problem that future tribunals didn't know whether they were supposed to do both sets of analyses as the Court of Appeal had done, or whether you didn't need to do both as the Court of Appeal seemed to have said. 
that's a little difficult for those future tribunals then. We've had a few gender-critical cases come before the employment tribunals since PAGE. What have they done with this? Well, Forstatter did both sets of analysis sequentially. Human rights, then direct discrimination, a la PAGE. Both Bailey and Makareth were closer to Wastney. There isn't much Article 9 analysis, just the question of whether the employer's reason was a justified objection to the way the employee expressed themselves. Right. So for anyone in the, the TLDR camp, this has all got a little bit messy, how to deal with direct discrimination when you're dealing with beliefs. Does this case, the Higgs case, answer that? I think it helps. It doesn't answer my first question at all, which is whether manifestation discrimination cases should be treated as indirect discrimination or direct. Again, this case was just pursued as direct, but the EAT made, I think, the best attempt yet at making Article 9 and the direct discrimination test fit together. And for anyone who hasn't heard Aileen and Dan's podcast touching on this case, Hannah, what were the facts of it? So the claimant was a pastoral administrator and work experience manager at a state secondary school. She was Christian, but for the purposes of the case, she relied on a series of specifically defined beliefs, including lack of belief that someone could change their biological sex and belief in marriage as a divinely instituted lifelong union between one man and one woman. A parent complained after she posted on Facebook about her views about relationships, education in primary schools. So here are some highlights from her posts. You will hear that they are forceful. So she said, please read this. They are brainwashing our children. And there was one that said that American children are being recruited for their transgender roster and that the LGBT crowd with the assistance of progressive school systems are destroying the minds of normal children by promoting mental illness. So the parents' complaint wasn't about the way she expressed herself, although there are plenty of things to be said about the way she expressed herself. The parents' complaint was that the views she expressed were homophobic. And the disciplinary allegation pursued against her was framed to be focused on her beliefs. So it mentioned that the language used was florid and evocative. But the true complaint seemed to be that from what she'd said, readers might reasonably conclude that she was was homophobic and was transphobic. And she was suspended and dismissed. So after her dismissal, she brings a claim. And what happens in the tribunal? So before the employment tribunal, she pleaded that this was direct discrimination. But the ET didn't really do either the Article 9 analysis or the justified objection analysis, although it mentioned both. It just asked, was there a causal connection between the claimant's beliefs as pleaded and the treatment she was subjected to? And the ET found there wasn't. So the ET accepted the respondent's evidence that if her beliefs had been expressed as moderately as they were before the tribunal, it wouldn't have pursued the disciplinary action. And you might think that that's a judgment that the respondent's reason was a justified objection to the way she expressed herself. That's familiar analysis for us by now. But the finding was subtly different. It was that the respondent was motivated by what readers might wrongly believe the claimant's beliefs were, having read her post. So the tribunal concluded that the reason for this conduct was therefore not the claimant's actual beliefs, direct discrimination, but that people reading her posts might reasonably conclude that she held hateful beliefs that would not be protected by the Equality Act. 
So that's a rather convoluted way of avoiding the tough question or the tough legal question. What did the EAT think of it? Yeah, the EAT said no dodging. It, dis- it disagreed with the Employment Tribunal's approach. And that's unsurprising since the tribunal hadn't applied any of the tests in the previous case law. But the exciting bit is the way that President Edie explained the correct test for direct discrimination in this context. So she set out a series of structured tests that are taken almost entirely from human rights law, but which seem to almost entirely replace the ordinary test for direct discrimination. What was this exciting new test then for direct discrimination dealing with someone's manifestation of their belief? Well, none of the tests within it are new, but the way that it all slots together is what's new. So the first stage is, is the belief protected? And that turns on the Granger and Nicholson test, as to which see Sean Jones and Andrew Smith's excellent episode of this podcast. In the the style of Friends, that episode was the one with the quiz. Is that right? That's right. That episode will be always immortalised as the one with the quiz. Then if the belief is protected and direct discrimination is pleaded, you turn around and you put your human rights law hat on. And you look at what the employee did to upset the employer. And you ask, was there a close and direct nexus between that conduct and their belief? So that's about the employee. It's not about what the employer was thinking. And that's the test from a wader. Then if there was a close and direct nexus, you do a proper human rights justification analysis. So not just a vague question about justified objections. You ask, were the employer's actions prescribed by law? So in an employment context, that's likely to involve considering whether the respondent's rules and policies were clear enough that the employee can understand what they're allowed to do in advance and what the consequences would be if they broke the rules. And then you apply the classic human rights proportionality assessment from a case called Bank Malat. So you do it properly, not just the abridged version. So you identify the employer's objective or reason, and then you ask, was the objective of the employer's conduct sufficiently important to justify the limitation of a protected right? Then, was the measure rationally connected to the objective? Then, could a less intrusive measure have been used without unacceptably compromising the achievement of the objective? And then finally, you balance the objective against the severity of the impact. And that, my friend, is proper human rights law. Very much so. And so far, so very exciting. But I seem to remember we had a problem, didn't we? In Page, they said something about the primary question still being the Equality Act because the Employment Tribunal is all about a statutory jurisdiction. So did Mrs Justice Edie drop that or what does she do with both of those tests? Well, see, she repeats this claim that those tests will always give you the same answer, which you know I'm not sure about. Right. But what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to ask a separate question at the end of the proportionality test about whether the reason for the conduct was a justified objection? Well, I've spoken to barristers who do think that you have to ask that question at the end, but I don't think so. President Edie didn't include it in her useful summary of the questions to be asked, which is at the end of her judgment. I think she's saying it's unnecessary. I think that question has evolved into being the heading for the test that you're actually applying, which is a full Bank Malat proportionality test. I see. So where are we? Do we know the lie of the land on on the law in this area now? 
Well, I think we're closer to an answer, but I think that answer begs some questions. It's not a complete answer. In what way? Well, there's two ways, at least, in which it's not a complete answer. The first is, as you say, it's still not 100% clear whether at the end of the human rights analysis we have to slip in this justified objection analysis. The second way in which it's not a complete answer is that it still doesn't answer that big question from the beginning, which is why all of this wouldn't more naturally be dealt with as indirect discrimination. So as Edie herself said in Wasteney all those years ago, and I agree with her, going back to that distinction we started with at the beginning between direct and indirect discrimination, these manifestation cases look and feel a lot more like indirect discrimination. So the employer isn't letting anyone wear anything on their heads, but that impacts Muslim women. Or the employer isn't letting anyone post controversial statements about gender on Facebook, but that impacts people with Ms. Higgs's beliefs. We seem to be very focused on treating these cases as direct discrimination. Either indirect isn't pleaded, or it's not pursued at the appellate stage, it's fails on the facts for reasons that don't often make sense to me. And so we've set up camp in the direct discrimination zone. But to do that, we've had to completely distort how direct discrimination usually works. So I'm waiting for an appellate case that deals with the role of indirect discrimination in this context. Okay, so it's not a complete answer, but at least it's a fairly definitive answer to what is the proper test for direct discrimination because of someone's manifestation of a belief. Is it though? I mean, as, as far as I know, this case could still go on appeal, though I'm, I'm keen to hear from listeners with better intel on that. And I should say that as the person who looks at the employment podcast email inbox, we have never yet received an email. <laughs> so if anyone would like to send us an email on that or indeed any topic, I would be delighted to receive it. But even if this case isn't appealed, it seems to me that these, these questions are just crying out to go higher up. We really need a comprehensive judgment by the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court, ideally addressing both direct and indirect discrimination in the context of manifestation of belief. And in the meantime, I don't think we can be confident of the law staying as it is. So in the meantime, while we wait for your emails to come and for this to get to the Supreme Court, what are employment lawyers meant to do? Plead in the alternative. And this was illustrated perfectly for me by what happened in my own practice the week this judgment came out. So I'm currently acting in a manifestation of belief case involving anti-Zionist beliefs. And is that is that the one about the NUS dismissing its president last year? Yes, it is. So I spent the week before Higgs and Farmer came out drafting the list of issues in that case. And then I got home Friday night, 1am, after a night of not working. And of course, our colleague Andrew Edge is still awake sitting in his house reading legal Twitter. And he sends me this judgment hot off the press, like my legal fairy godmother. And I spend Saturday completely rewriting the list of issues, asking myself exactly this question. What are employment lawyers supposed to do in the meantime? I really can't see why people aren't emailing us more <laughs> with the lives that you have for all leaving <laughs> you do get insights actually running this podcast into the lives that people lead because i also monitor the analytics for the podcast and i could see that both on christmas eve and on boxing day people did listen to episodes of this podcast so why they don't email us i cannot fathom 
well, let's hope we can have a question session next time. Right, so back to your Friday night. What did you do with Andy Edge's message? So I put into my list of issues that lovely, clear list of tests that we now have from Higgs, and that was a good bit. But then I also left everything in. I left in justified objection to manifestation as a separate question. I left in indirect discrimination in the alternative, because the reality is that this list of issues may well change before our case comes to trial. And that's all I can advise other lawyers to do. Get on top of the way the tests work post-Higgs, but plead everything in the alternative. Just be prepared. That was Hannah Slarks talking to me, Ben Mitchell, about the Higgs and Farmer's School case. The podcast is produced by Hannah. You can find the 11KBW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps. You can also email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com. 